One of the easiest but worst things to do for a Christian is to dwarf Jesus Christ, to shrink him to be smaller than he actually is. And not surprisingly, the greatest antidote to doing that is to get a better focus, a better study, a better understanding and observation, a better consideration of Jesus Christ. Now, when it comes to this concept of consideration or considering, I, we know there's a difference between consider and consider. I mean, I considered what vegetable I'd have for dinner last night, but I considered who I would marry. There's a difference between consider and consider. And the text for today, Hebrews 3, 1 through 6, calls each of us to consider Jesus. Not casually, not quickly, but to consider Jesus. See it there with me in Hebrews 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, here it is, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. And so the call to you and me is to consider Christ, and we're to consider him at two levels according to this one verse. The first level that we are to consider Jesus on is that he is the apostle. Apostle is a word that means a sent one. But Jesus Christ is not any sent one. He is the chief sent one. He is the capital A apostle. In fact, he is such a sent apostle that in turn he sends you and me. Christ was sent by the Father to the cross, and Christ sends the church to the world who needs him. And so the first consideration we are to have for Jesus Christ is that he is the ultimate apostle, the ultimate sent one. But secondly, according to the same verse one, we are also to consider Jesus that he is the high priest. And if apostle had a capital A on it, and it did, then high priest has a capital H and a capital P on it. He is not any high priest. He is not one of many high priests. He is the supreme high priest, the ultimate high priest. That is who Jesus is, and consider that. And very quickly, I want to consider with you, what are some of the ramifications, the benefits, the outflowings of Jesus Christ being the supreme high priest, your high priest if you're saved? Number one, he is the ultimate go-between with respect to the covenant people and the covenant maker. Jesus Christ is our ultimate go-between between the covenant people, the new covenant, New Testament people that we celebrate at the Lord's table today. We are the new covenant people of God. Jesus Christ is the high priest, the one and only go-between between us and the covenant maker, God the Father. But that's not all. Also, as our high priest, Jesus Christ is the one and only God who is man, the one and only man who is God. The fusion of deity and humanity in the incarnation, Christmas. Third, as our high priest, Jesus Christ is the perfect prayer warrior for the human race, for the church of Jesus Christ. He's the perfect prayer warrior because we are in dire need of prayer, amen? We are in dire need of prayer. There isn't a moment in our lives that we don't need prayer. And Jesus at the right hand of the Father as a high priest prays for us. Not that we can't pray for ourselves or should not. We can pray for ourselves and we must. But as our high priest, Jesus Christ is the ultimate prayer warrior. But there's more. He is the one, unique one, who offers the blood sacrifice necessary to pay for sin, and at the same time, the one who is the blood sacrifice to pay for sin. And that's what, among other things, what these uh, 
elements remind us of today. These simple elements of bread and juice remind us of the body and the blood of Christ, the unique, vicariously atoning blood of Jesus Christ. Blood like none other. Blood like no blood before it and blood like no blood after it. He is both the one who offers the necessary blood sacrifice for our sins and he is the one who is the necessary blood sacrifice for our sins. And the fifth thing I want you to see is this wonderful high priest, capital H, capital P, high priest, Jesus. He's the cornerstone. He's the chandelier. He's the champion of our whole Christian confession of faith. Verse one. And the high priest of our confession. If we didn't have the high priest, Jesus Christ, we would have no gospel to share. If we didn't have the high priest of Jesus Christ, we would have no new life to live. And so these two words, consider Jesus, are amazing. Verse 1, therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and the high priest of our confession. These two words, consider Jesus, are only two words, but these two words will form the storyline, the plot line, the activity schedule of all of eternity. All of heaven's time will be spent by believers in Jesus considering Jesus. Amazing. These two words, consider Jesus, are a command to us, church. They are not a suggestion. These two words, consider Jesus, are an obligation for us as Christians and not one option of many. And the great thing is, when we consider Jesus Christ, the consideration will be inexhaustible. The depths of the sea, the breadth of the sea on the globe, will not exhaust who he is, his person, his work, his sacrifice, his resurrection, his glorification. Considering Jesus Christ is inexhaustible. He's the perfect storyline, as I've said, of eternity. And so these two words, consider Jesus, namely the verse says that he's the apostle and the high priest, we had better practice doing that now. You'd realize that life on earth is a dress rehearsal for life in eternity. And if we don't consider Jesus now on earth, will we know how to consider him in eternity? Consider Jesus now. Don't wait. We should practice considering Jesus right now, this week, today. How, what will that take? I'll tell you what it won't take. Laziness. Distraction. Idols. To consider Jesus Christ here on earth now will take fixed thoughts on Jesus. It will take continuous focus on Jesus. It will take discipline. It will take time. It will take quietness. It will take scripture. And it will take prayer. Considering Jesus properly before we get to heaven with him will require the disciplines of the spiritual life like scripture memorization and personal Bible study and journaling and corporate prayer times like on Monday nights and corporate public worship times like right now and Christ-honoring music. By the way, what music do you listen to when you're free to listen to any music at all in your car, your iPod, your device? If you will listen to Christ-honoring music, you will begin to better consider him. 
Prayer alone will take prayer alone. It'll take prayer with your spouse, prayer with your family, prayer with your church family. It'll take fasting. Not taking food for a certain period of time so the time you otherwise would prepare the food, eat the food, and clean up the food, you would consider Jesus in prayer. It'll take evangelizing and defending our faith. These are the spiritual disciplines that will be required if we will properly consider Jesus and not shrink him to some little manageable thing that we've got a handle on that's a nice add-on to what we're doing any given day. And so we're to consider Jesus. Now, it strikes me that this considering of Jesus is a lot like what happened to me at the ATM, the Scotiabank ATM on Bay Street yesterday. I could only take out of the ATM what I first put in that account beforehand. (laughs) I couldn't say, I like $500 and I only put $200 in the account. Doesn't work that way. We will get out of Jesus only what we've put into him first. Only the degree to which we've considered him is what we can hope to get out of him. Henry Benjamin Whipple wrote, all we want in Christ, we shall find in Christ. If we want little, we shall find little. If we want much, we shall find much. But if in utter helplessness we cast our all on Christ, he will be to us the whole treasury of God. You're only going to get out of Jesus what you have put into thinking about him and considering him. Consider Jesus. Verse 1, again. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. The same Greek word that's translated uh, consider here in Hebrews 3 verse 1 is the very same Greek word used in Luke chapter 12 verse 24. And in that setting, the Lord Jesus told his men to consider the ravens, to consider the birds. And why did Jesus tell his followers to consider the ravens? So that they could better understand by seeing how God provided for the ravens that God was going to provide for them. I don't think we have ravens here. It could be corrected. But you can see around you Christ's creation. And as you focus on Christ's creation, you can better understand what he means to you and what he ought to mean to you. Now, the original readers of the epistles of the Hebrews, I've told you many times before, they were Jews who converted to saving faith in Christ. They were Jewish people who became believers in the Lord Jesus. They were saved the same way that we are saved. They were saved by seeing Jesus Christ as God, virgin born, crucified for sin, raised bodily from the dead, and they trusted that Jesus like we do today, and that's how they got saved, and that's how we get saved. And so when they had a temptation, when they read this first epistle as converted Jews who were now Christians, they were being persecuted by the church, excuse me, persecuted by Rome and persecuted by their families, Jewish families who didn't like the fact that they'd left Judaism to follow Jesus Christ. And so they lost their jobs, they lost their families, they lost their homes. In some cases, they lost their lives. And they had a temptation to say, a whole lot would be much easier if I was just a secret follower of Jesus and I went back into Judaism and all of his rituals and no one would bug me, no one would harass me, no one would hurt me. 
That was their temptation, to return to Judaism. Do you know the temptation that we have as Gentiles, Christian Gentiles? Our temptation is to return to ourselves. Homemade righteousness, self-effort pleasing of God, ministering in this church without abiding in Christ, flesh Christianity and not faith Christianity. The, the temptation that we face is that we would return to ourselves and have a Christless Christianity, a crossless Christianity. You do know that the cross that will be remembered by the bread and the cup today has two sides to it, same cross. On one side is the side that Christ died for us, praise his name. The other side of the same cross is we died with Christ. Same cross. Christ died for us, that dealt with justification. Us dying with Christ deals with sanctification. Christ dying for us deals with the old man. We dying with Christ deals with Christian living in victory. So our temptation is not to return to rituals of Judaism, but our temptation is very real to return to ourselves. Self-effort Christianity, prayerless Christianity, crossless Christianity. That's our temptation. Verse 2. He was faithful to him who appointed him as Moses also was in his house. This verse makes two points very quickly. Jesus was faithful to his father. How? Because his father sent him to the cross and Jesus went to the cross. The second point is that Moses was faithful to his house, I'll put in quotes, and his house was the nation of Israel. Christ was faithful to the father in the cross. Moses was faithful to Yahweh in the context of Israel. He was faithful leader in the Jewish nation. Now, verses three and four. For he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. For, for every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. These verses are arguing for, making the case for, Christ being better than Moses by using architecture or construction as the illustration. And these verses are saying that house builders are more important than the houses which they build. Or to be more specific, the house builder of the nation of Israel, Jesus, who built the nation of Israel from heaven before he came to earth, is more glorious than the Jewish nation house which Jesus built. Christ is better than Moses. And so next we go in our passage in verses 5 and 6. We move from verse 4 to verses 5 and 6. And in so doing, we will see a sharp, important distinction made between Moses and Jesus Christ. Verses 5 and 6. Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence in, and the boast of our hope firm until the end. Did you hear it? Moses, on one hand, was in the house of Israel, but Christ was over the house of Israel. Did you hear it? Moses was a servant to the house of Israel, but Christ was the son, both inside the nation of Israel and now in the church. A son is more important than a servant. 
A person who's over a house is more important than a person who's in a house. Jesus is better than Moses. Now, before we hurry off verse 6, I want to point out something and try to hopefully help you if you have any questions about it. Verse 6. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence and boast of our hope firm until the end. That last phrase might be sticky for some of you. It says, if we hold fast our confidence and boast of our hope firm until the end. Does that phrase say that the doctrine of once saved, always saved is an erroneous doctrine. Does that phrase teach that somehow, some way, you can lose your salvation once you were given your salvation? No, it doesn't mean that. We believe the scripture teaches that once God saves us, the same grace that saved us is the same grace that keeps us safely saved. So what is, what's going on here? I'm gonna show you three verses that are similar to what we just read in Hebrews 3.6, and the first one is 1 Corinthians 15.2, which says, by which you are saved if you hold fast the word which I preach to you. The word that is to be held fast is a genuine saving faith in Christ. How does that come about? You understand the right things about Jesus Christ. You mentally agree with those things about Jesus Christ, and then you trust Jesus Christ only. That's legitimate saving faith. But the verse goes on, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preach to you, now watch, unless you believed in vain. Apparently, it's possible to believe in Jesus Christ in vain, to believe in Jesus Christ for nothing, to believe in Jesus Christ and not, in fact, be saved from your sins. What kind of faith would that be? Well, it would be a shallow faith. It would be a non-saving faith. Perhaps it would be understanding about Jesus, but not mentally agreeing with everything you understand. Or maybe it's understanding properly about Jesus and mentally agreeing about what you found out about Jesus, but not fully trusting Christ alone. Whatever way, it's a spurious faith. It's a shallow faith. And the verse is saying, by which also you are saved if you hold fast to the word. That's having sound, saving faith. Contrast, unless you believed in vain. So this is not a losing of salvation. This is a clarification of what kind of faith brings salvation. Hebrews 3, verse 14 is another one I'd like to take up with you. It says, for we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. Holding on to our assurance of salvation is not how to get salvation or how to keep salvation. It is proof of saving faith and salvation. It's like this. In my marriage vows at our ceremony, I promised and pledged fidelity to Beth alone and be involved with no other woman. That promise of marital fidelity until death is like saving faith in Christ. But when it says you don't hold fast to the beginning of our assurance firm to the end, then that would be if the years unfolded, in this illustration, if the years unfolded and I didn't remain true to Beth, God forbid it, then that would show that my commitment initially at the upfront in the wedding ceremony didn't hold water. And what would give any husband who made a promise before God and his wife 
fidelity until one of them dies, the Holy Spirit, choices, prayer, the word of God, commitment. Third verse I'd like to unpack with you that also does not say that we lose our salvation on certain conditions, but still lines up with once saved, always saved, or the perseverance of the saints, whatever you might call it. 1 John 2, verse 19, that says, they went out from us, they refers to false teachers in the early first century church and deceivers, they went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out in order that it might be shown that they all are not of us. When they walked out of the church, forsaking true doctrine, forsaking true believer brothers and sisters, and all the other things it means to be a church, the Lord's Supper, etc., it wasn't that they had lost the salvation they once had. It proved that they'd never had a salvation in the first place. Once saved, always saved. The same grace that saves you in Christ is the same grace that can keep you securely saved in Christ. I'll tell you what, if keeping my salvation secure so it wouldn't be lost depended on me, I would have lost it a long time ago. Maybe you can relate. Now, let me state the obvious. Based on the three verses, the collateral verses I've just tried to explain quickly, let me state the obvious. There are plenty of persons in the Commonwealth of the Bahamas or any other country you name on the globe who profess Christ better than they possess Christ. They profess saving faith in Christ. Yeah, I'm saved. I trust Jesus. I'm a Christian. But they really don't possess a saving faith in Christ. They're playing. Sometimes they're self-deceived. They think they're saved, but they're not. We have all kinds of examples in the New Testament of people who are better at professing than possessing salvation in Christ. You ready? These people were counterfeit and not converted. They knew the language of the Lord, but they never knew the Lord experientially through saving faith. Lots of them. Persons such as the false teachers who prophesied and cast out demons and did miracles in Matthew 7 referenced Jesus, referenced them. Or the Nicolaitans in, Re- in Revelation chapter 2, or Hymenaeus and Alexander in 1 Timothy 1, or Simon the sorcerer in Acts 8. These are all people who talked a good religious game and necessarily uh, were warm toward Jesus, said they followed Jesus, said they believed in Jesus, but they didn't. These are what these people are. The Pharisees, they were very few religious people, more religious people than the Pharisees, but they weren't saved. They were religious, but they weren't redeemed. Or King Herod, at the time of Jesus' birth, remember when he said to the Magi, tell, us, tell me where he is that I might worship him. He wasn't going to worship him, he was going to kill him. Or the so-called brother in the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 5, There's plenty of examples in the New Testament of people who said they were a Christian, professed they were Christians, and they were not. They were not possessors of Christ. They were only professors of Christ. They were not converted. They were only counterfeit. They knew the language, but they didn't know the Lord. Judas Iscariot. 
in Acts 20. Ephesian elders were warned by the Apostle Paul that wolves will come into the church at Ephesus and wolves in sheep's clothing. People who say they're a Christian, who claim to be a Christian, but they're deceivers, they're false teachers, they're not real, they're dangerous. And so back then, in the first century, in the time of the New Testament, there were plenty of imposters in faith. And you know, like I've said, today there are plenty of imposters in faith now. Television programs, books they've written, big churches, they're not Christians. See, see, Pastor Rod, this is kind of raises my eyebrow. How do I know if I'm a Christian? Can I know if I'm a Christian? Have I just been going through the motions and I'm not really saved? Fortunately, we are told in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, something that we should really enter into today, and it's this. We are to examine ourselves, to test ourselves, to see whether or not we are in the faith. 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves, or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you unless, indeed, you fail the test. This is a very interesting verse. It's a right-in-your-face verse. It's a knock-you-upside-of-the-head verse. It says, well, you notice, it says to test yourselves. I can't test any of you. You can't test anybody else in the, in the congregation. The person who is to do this is a self-administered test. Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. There it is again. I can't examine you. You can't examine Susie or Billy. You can only examine yourself. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test. Indeed there, it's emphatic. It tells us that there's apt to be people who aren't in Christ. That's what it says when it says indeed. And so what do we do about this? It says, for test yourselves to see if you are in the faith, the faith, it's a defined faith, it's a biblical faith, it's not a nebulous and fuzzy faith, it's not a feeling, it's the faith in Christ that saves. Examine yourselves, or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless, the unless means it's possible that he's not in you, although you dress up and come to church every Sunday, unless indeed you fail a test which is possible. That's why he said, indeed. I remember being in a Word of Life lecture at Word of Life Bible Institute in Scream Lake, New York, and this verse was preached by Tom Harris, and one-third of the Bible school class went forward because they weren't saved. They were playing games. When, when I was led to this sermon, I wasn't thinking of anybody in particular in Calvary Bible Church, but just the principle that we need to examine ourselves to see if we're in the faith or not. And so how do we do that? Well, biblically, we do that with some questions, biblical questions, five of them. 
Here's how you could test yourself to see whether or not you're a Christian. Number one, do I have the witness of the Holy Spirit in my heart? Do I have the witness of the Holy Spirit in my heart? That is Romans 8, 9 and Romans 8, 16. Listen, however, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, capital S, spirit, if indeed the spirit, capital S, of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. So if you do not see any work, any evidence, any fruit of the Holy Spirit in your life or all your life, you're probably not a Christian. Because true Christians have the Holy Spirit living and working in them. Or, verse 16 of Romans 8, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. If the Spirit of God isn't telling you long before this sermon that you're a Christian, then maybe you should ask yourself, am I a Christian? Second question to examine yourself about being in the faith or not. Do I love the brethren? Do I love the brethren? First John, verse Chapter 3, verse 14. And we know that we have passed out of death into life. How? Because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. A test of whether you're truly a Christian is if you love other brothers and sisters in Christ. You want to be with them. You want to help them. You want to listen to them. You want to pray with them. You want to financially give to them. You can't wait for Sundays to come. It's not a drudgery. It's not a duty. Do I love the brethren? The third question is, do I practice righteousness? Do I practice righteousness? What does that mean? 1 John 2, verse 29. You know that he is righteous. You know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. When we are truly saved, we practice righteousness. We're not sinlessly perfect. But the videotape of our Christian lives shows that we're moving in a direction. We're consistent. We're wanting to be more like Christ. We're wanting to obey the Bible and its commands. We're wanting to stay close to Jesus. We want the Holy Spirit to control us. And that's the storyline, the motion, the movement, and the momentum of our Christian lives. There may be an episode where they click the camera and there's a picture taken and it's sin. But that's the exception, not the rule when you're truly saved. And still on this question, do I practice righteousness? 1 John 3, verse 9 is very similar. It says, no one who is born of God practices sin. That is on an ongoing, habitual, characteristic level. This is not sinless perfection. But it's saying that the overall flow of a person's life is toward Christ and not away from him. Is lined up with the values of the Bible and not opposing them. It's a life of worship and praise and not grumbling and dissatisfaction. What's the videotape of your life look like? If it doesn't look like righteousness over the whole way of your life, then maybe you should ask yourself, I'm a Christian. Going on. Number four, have I overcome the world so that I'm living a godly life? The world is not Asia, Europe, Africa. The world is a system of thinking, a worldview that cheerfully and completely leaves Jesus Christ out of everything. Have I overcome that system, that worldview, so that my life is lived in a, a holy manner? I want my life to be lived in a holy manner. I want scripture to govern me, not Hollywood. 1 John 5, verse 4. 
For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. So it's saying that the true Christian, the person who's really bona fide, born again Christian, they rise above a worldview without Christ. They detach themselves from a worldview that doesn't like Christ. They win over a worldview that isn't about Christ. They hate enticements that bring us to that worldview. And they reject that worldview when no one's looking, as much as they reject it when everybody's looking. These are self-diagnostic questions. I can't answer these questions for any of you. I can only answer these questions for me. Do I have the witness of the Holy Spirit in my heart? Do I love the brethren? Do I practice righteousness? Have I overcome the world so that I'm living a life of holy separation? And last question, do I have a new life different to my old life? Do I have a new life that's different to my old life? 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things passed away, behold, new things have come. Is your current life diametrically different to your former life before conversion? Someone has said before conversion, what I cried about, I now laugh about as a Christian, and what I laughed about, I cry about as a Christian. Is your life markedly different than it used to be? Not perfect, but advancing away from what you used to be, the old person you used to be. If that's not happening, maybe you should ask yourself, am I a Christian? Consider Jesus. Consider Jesus. I've been around the block long enough that I know a sermon like this is like the cold seawater splashing you at the beach in the face. Maybe you're catching your balance right now. Maybe you have questions about the verses I've shared with you about these five questions to see if you're in the faith or not. Maybe you are sure you're not in the faith, but everybody else has thought you've been in the faith for years. There'll be some pastors in the choir room after we let out from this service. If you just like to talk and just like to ask a couple questions and maybe pray with someone, the pastors will be there after dismissal to do that. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come to the table. May it be a fresh and a new experience, no matter how many times we've come to this table before. Help those who are struggling with where they are at with Christ. Be patient and prayerful. Talk to somebody after the service lets out. For those of us who know we're saved, and we know we're saved not based on anything we could be or done for Jesus, but purely as purely grace. May our time of reflection on what he's done for us on the cross be sweet and real and life-changing. And we pray this in his beautiful name together. Amen.